This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. The Western travel narrative genre has a history long tied to voyeurism and conquest a way to see the world and its many unique people and places through the eyes of mostly white and male travelers. In an increasingly globalized world, many writers are beginning to raise questions about the ethics of travel writing and its tropes, especially the way Western travelers tend to characterize cultures that are unfamiliar to them. These new books challenge the conventional approach, instead asking readers to consider perspectives other than their own. As a young Native woman and member of the Karuk tribe, Ursula Pike joined the Peace Corps because she'd always dreamed of helping others. She was ecstatic to learn that she would be assigned to serve in small-town Cantuta, Bolivia. While at first Pike looked forward to helping the Native people of Cantuta, she quickly realized that they had less need for her help and more to teach her than she had imagined. In this thoughtful debut, an Indian among Los Indígenas, a Native travel memoir, Pike examines the complicated ways we help one another, asking timely questions about how one can become of service to a community as an outsider. Today on the New Books Network, join us as we sit down with Ursula Pike to learn more about her memoir, An Indian Among Los Indígenas, available now from Heyday. Ursula, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. I'm excited to talk to you about the book. Wonderful. So um, my first question... Early on in the book, you describe the discrepancy between, uh, quote, the real life you lived and the version of American Indian everyone expected. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your relationship to the Carrick tribe and your heritage? Sure. Thank you for this question. So I grew up on the West Coast, living between Northern California, Oregon, and Washington State. And even though my family, my mother, my grandmother, connected us to our tribe, the Keruk tribe, um, in Northern California, we also were connected to this larger Native community in urban and rural areas throughout the, the West Coast. So, for example, when we lived in Portland, we attended the Delta Park powwow, or uh, when my mother was working near the Warm Springs Reservation, we would go there and attend different ceremonies and events that they had. So I had a clear understanding that I was both Keruk, that that was my tribe, but that I also played a role in in a larger 
more diverse uh, Native community made up of, of many tribes. And, you know, my mother was a timber manager for many of these tribes. And so I came to know all kinds of different Native folks, uh, Native botanists and tribal council members and fry cooks. And none of that ever was reflected in, in books or movies that I saw. This incredibly diverse group of Natives was not represented. And so I knew that there was the version of Native that I did see on TV or in movies or in books. And then there was the much more diverse reality that I lived and that my family lived. So I went to Peace Corps in the mid-90s, and then I came back and uh, studied community development and had began a career in, at nonprofits in higher ed. And while working in higher education, I did a lot of work in equity because in higher ed, for the last 10, 15 years, we have been looking at why the experiences and outcomes of students of color is different. And through that equity work, it made me reflect on my own experience in Peace Corps as a Native person. And it made me want to, to explore it in writing. Well, I'd like to hear more about what drew you as a young woman to the Peace Corps. So what were some of your initial hopes when you applied to volunteer with the Peace Corps and then when you learned that you would be assigned to work in Bolivia? When I was in high school, I was assigned a job working in the high school library of going through these old magazines. And there was an old life magazine that had pictures of some of the first Peace Corps volunteers. And I'd never heard of the Peace Corps. And I was looking at these pictures and they were mostly white faces surrounded by black faces white volunteers serving in Africa. And even though that didn't look like me, when, when the more I read about the Peace Corps, the more I got excited about this opportunity. And of course, I realized that you had to have a college degree. And it honestly was one of the reasons that I was motivated to go to college. However, because of my mom's experience working for the Bureau of Indian Affairs, a government agency, I understood that that it was complicated and that it sometimes uh, was, that she was often the only Native person in an organization serving Native people. And, and so I knew that it was, it was a complicated opportunity, but an opportunity nonetheless. And I was active in a lot of student groups in college. And I understood that in order for change to come about, you have to do something. You have to go in and, and try and work for that change. You can't sit on the sidelines and just complain about it. Mm -hmm. So I, I really hoped to de deliver, to be a different kind of volunteer, to show a diverse face of the United States and 
show people who uh, acknowledge the full humanity of of who wherever I went. And then when I found out that I was being invited to Bolivia, I was over the moon. I was so excited because I I knew a little bit about Bolivia's indigenous history, but the more I learned, the more excited I I was and it was an amazing opportunity for me as a native person. So you write that in the Peace Corps, um, there was a pervasive assumption that a person knew how to help simply because they'd grown up in the United States. Um, so, But once you arrived in Bolivia, you saw that though, quote, you were there to help Bolivians, it was clear that they had to help you every single day. Um, can you talk about this irony and maybe some of the things that you were thinking about at the time? Yes. And, and I'll just preface my answer by saying it, this is one of the most difficult aspects of writing about the Peace Corps is to question the ability of the volunteers because most of them, most of us went there with just an open heart ready to help, really a desire to help. We had a bunch of uh, icebreakers early on in, when we arrived in Bolivia, and that's what everyone was saying, that they were just there to help. But the truth is, most of us were fresh out of college and had zero experience in community development, uh, in working with people who were different than us. Most of us didn't even speak the language, and the language was Spanish, and it was Quechua and Aymara and other indigenous languages. And we had three months of training, but that was really just to get us self, get us acclimated. So... I knew also that America didn't work for everyone, that my experience growing up in the United States, I saw the inconsistencies in the American dream. And so I did feel a little bit more conflicted than it seemed my, my classmates did, uh, or my training mates did about their experience. Mm-hmm. And, um, and while it had many great cultural exchanges, opportunities, we went into people's homes and we were able to show them our food and teach them about the United States and our culture and our individual cultures and we learned about theirs, there were so many times where I just thought, how is this helping? I, I, how is what I'm doing helping? Because I had to get assistance every step of the way with with all of the projects that I did, everything from washing my clothes to uh, starting a bakery project with the girls at the children's home where I was. So I'm glad that you bring up the bakery project because this leads into some of the questions I have there. Um, So during your time in Cantuta, you volunteered at uh, the Children's Center where you met children who lived at the center for the opportunity to attend school, some of whom um, were there out of necessity and some of whom were living there for a uh, better opportunity than they would have living at home with their parents, such as uh, two little boys you mentioned in particular named Tomas and Umberto. Uh, so what was it like to work with the children there? And can you talk a little more about some of the projects that you did with them? Yes. So first of all, the center had about a hundred kids ranging from uh, five to 18, attending the school across the street. And many of them were from the countryside where there either wasn't a school 
or maybe the school stopped at uh, fifth grade. And many of them were also from low-income families. It was supported by donations, international donations, and therefore the kids could get food and help with their homework and, and then all kinds of support as they were attending school. And when I was first assigned to the Children's Center, I didn't think it was an important enough job. I, I really thought, oh, I want to work with the Ministry of Finance, or I want to do something that seems more impactful. But pretty quickly, I understood that it was a great fit for me, because when I was going to college, I had worked at the school daycare, and I, I understood how to work with kids. And, and I loved it. I loved working with those kids. So with kids who were young, five or six, like Tomas and Umberto, I really just helped them a little bit with their homework. But with the teenagers, uh, I was able to start a bakery project with them. And so we did some research in the market to see how much different items cost. And then we bought supplies and we baked. We, we spent a couple of days baking because the school, the center already had a, a large oven that they used to bake bread for the children. Mm -hmm. So we were able to use existing resources to, to bake something. And the girls chose what they wanted to bake. And I, there was a fantastic uh, staff member at the children's center who helped me, who had experience in baking and selling goods and who really saved me because she helped me so much by coming up with a recipe and helping me guide the girls through the whole process of, of making the product and then selling it. And it was a, a great experience for me. It, it didn't last longer than one semester, but I learned a lot and, and I, I really enjoyed those the opportunity to connect with the girls and the other staff through this project. There was also a, a Charango workshop. So the village of Cantuta is famous for these small 10 stringed um, ukulele like instruments. And so the previous volunteer had gotten a grant to start a Charango workshop and she um, left kind of right as it was getting started up. So I learned how to make a charango myself and I would help market them. Not very successfully, but I, I would try and help sell some of the charangos in the, in the country. But again, all of these were great ways to, to get to interact with both the kids and the staff and I, I learned so much about Bolivia and what was important to them through these projects. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. 
Yeah. And so in the bakery project, you mentioned that you were working with some teenage girls. And so of the teenage girls you met at the Children's Center, um, you write, quote, part of me wanted to encourage them to go to college and remake their world. But that was the version of empowerment I learned from a white woman in college. It was as if everything about Native women's lives was wrong, as if there was one version of liberation. Um, so I'm wondering, can you tell us a little bit more about alternate versions of liberation for Native women? Yes, I, I love this question, and I'm so glad you asked. Because it's something that I personally struggled with as I saw the Bolivians struggle with this. The concept that I learned, especially in college, was that you've come a long way, baby. That the the sign of uh, progress is how far you have come from your previous from previous generations, and it seems that we are encouraged to move as far away from uh, our mothers' lives, our grandmothers' lives, in order to prove that things are getting better. And I think that there is a version of liberation. Uh, of empowerment for women that doesn't necessarily drive that wedge between you and previous generations that allows you to still be to connect with your culture and your ancestors, which sometimes are imperfect and, and have some inequities in them, but still be empowered. I saw this clearly in examples. Uh, I went out to the country for a visit, um, about an, a year into my stay, where I was visiting um, an older woman who dressed traditionally, spoke only Quechua, and then her daughter understood Quechua, spoke it to her mother, did not dress traditionally. And then the granddaughter, who almost never spoke Quechua, understood it but never spoke it. Well, that granddaughter would be able to go to college in town. She had so many more opportunities than her grandmother had, but it felt almost like with each succeeding generation, they had to give up connection to their culture in order to achieve these, in order to be able to reach these opportunities. And I had seen that in my own family. I had seen, you know, my grandmother left our traditional homeland and moved to San Francisco and even though she had more opportunities and did really well financially, she had lost some connections with her tribe. We went back every year, of course, and stayed in touch with all of our family in the homelands mm -hmm. in Happy Camp in Northern California. But we didn't necessarily, but it was clearly different than people who, who had been able to stay there in the homeland. So more about, uh, you say it drives a wedge, right, between the, the heritage and traditions and then this one idea of liberation. So later in the book, you describe the choice that many Quechua women make to actually stop dressing as a cholita, so to stop dressing in traditional Native dress. And you underscore the unfairness of this choice. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about First, what a cholita is and why Native women might feel pressure to stop dressing this way 
what are some of the cultural impacts of these choices? Right. Well, yeah, let me start by saying what a Cholita is, because I I know that it has a different meaning to some communities here in the U.S. So in Bolivia, a Cholita is a woman who dresses traditionally in skirts and braids her hair and wears a hat. And in different parts of Bolivia, it's a different, slightly different dress in the capital city of La Paz, the Aymara women will wear long skirts and those famous bowler hats tipped at the side. But in Cochabamba, which is the central part of Bolivia where I was, it was these shorter, flouncier skirts um, with many petticoats underneath it, and then white hats that look kind of like Sunday um brimmed hats that that you would wear. So that's the traditional clothing. And you can see women in those Cholita outfits all all over Bolivia, but not all women are are wearing them. When I first went to the the center, there was a young woman named Jimenita, who I became friends with. She was a assistant in the in the kitchen. And she was a Cholita. And one day she asked me, I'm thinking of not being a Cholita anymore. I'm thinking of dressing de moda. I'm thinking of dressing modern. And what do you think, Ursula? And I was really struck, first, that she was asking my opinion. But second of all, at this just stark choice that she felt that she had to make, she said people would see her dressed as a Cholita and identify her as an India, as a, as an Indian, which was a bad word. It meant uneducated and poor, that connection to her indigenous identity. And even though she knew it was wrong, we all knew it was wrong. It was just an economic reality that there were fewer opportunities, especially for indigenous women. And she could blend in a little bit more if she wasn't wearing her traditional clothes. And and I said, Jimenita, do what you think you need to do, uh, even though it broke my heart a little bit. And and then a few days later, she showed up and she uh, wasn't wearing her uh, hat and her her traditional polieta, the skirt, and she was dressing, you know, nor um, modern. And once you stop dressing as a Cholita, you typically don't dress as a Cholita ever again. It, I mean, I, I still am friends with her, and, and she never went back to being a Cholita, which was common. And it's a, the, the clothes may seem um, superficial, but they are a direct connection to your, your culture, to an indigenous culture. And... To me, the importance of it, it's just another thing that uh, separates people from their culture and deny, makes them deny their culture and, and try and hide it. You know, at, in, at boarding schools in the United States, one of the first things that they did at the Indian boarding schools, one of the first things they did was cut the hair and make the Native students that were attending change their clothes to Western wear as a first step in, in dis, disconnecting them 
from their culture. Mm-hmm. And the last thing I'll, I'll say about this is when Deb Holland was just uh, sworn in as the first indigenous uh, secretary of the interior, she that morning put on moccasins. And that's the thing I have seen the last couple of days all over native Twitter. People are so excited that not only is she uh, the first indigenous department of interior secretary, she was wearing traditional clothes as she was sworn in as a clear connection to her heritage. It's just really important. That's wonderful. Um, So for my next question, I want to return to the Peace Corps and ask, so throughout um, an Indian among those um, indigenous, there's always a question as to the impact that volunteers are having on the community. Um, So you write about another Peace Corps volunteer named Daniel who helped local farmers engineer wells in their fields. And in the book you write, it was clear that neither Daniel nor the Peace Corps was the savior here, but they had helped to make this project a reality. Um, so I'm wondering, how did you understand the role of the Peace Corps in Bolivia and across the world at the time? How has that maybe changed? Right. At the time when I went into Peace Corps, I thought of the organization as helpful, even though I wasn't exactly sure what I would find when I arrived in Bolivia. I thought maybe the volunteers were kind of innocent and unaware of the history of U.S. involvement or Western involvement, colonialism. And I found that somewhat to be true. Not everybody was. There were many people who also understood that that Westerners had been coming to the Andes, to Bolivia forever and, and had done had supported genocide and and other things like that. Um, But what I actually was surprised to discover is that the projects that the Peace Corps did, both in Bolivia and, and what I've heard around the world, is that sometimes they were actually effective and in small ways, which is the only way they could be because it was typically one person working in one community. And as somebody who has studied economic and community development, which is what I studied after Peace Corps, I understood that those projects that worked were the ones that were meeting a community need that the community had identified and that everybody was involved in. So Daniel's water project, that's exactly what it was. The community said, we need uh, more wells. We need more catchment ponds. It's very dry. It would help us if we had water. It would help us to grow our crops. And he was able, along with some other volunteers who had been there before him, to identify some funds and support to fund those projects. And but and and so that was a a, a project that met um, what any successful community development project would would do. But there were others where people were less effective. I know I was not very effective, and I'm I'm totally fine with that. 
but I, I think that it was, that was what was surprising to me that it was somewhat effective, but then a lot of it was just, as I said, young people with not really any experience, maybe not doing harm, not do not helping too much, but, uh, having like a cultural exchange with, with the Bolivians. Mm-hmm. So another thread in the book is how few people of color that you encountered as uh, other volunteers during your years in the Peace Corps. And in one case, uh, you talk about a woman, a friend that you had who was punished for breaking a rule that the organization had often looked the other way on when white volunteers were caught doing the same thing. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about this discrepancy as you experienced it? Yeah, I, and I would like to, to start just by looking at the fact that even in the 1990s, Peace Corps recognized that they needed to increase diversity. I found some reports that they gave to Congress that identified a need to increase diversity. And that's something that I see organizations doing right now, trying to figure out how do they increase diversity of their participants and and especially at institutions of higher ed. Um, And so it was definitely uh, an issue in, in Bolivia, the lack of representation And then specifically regarding the woman who was punished for breaking a rule, she was my good friend. And so I was personally heartbroken. And I don't know all the details of how she was uh, told to leave. But, and the truth is, she did break a rule that there was a reason for that rule. They're trying to keep volunteers safe. But when it happened, it confirmed what I knew about life in the United States, that it, it is always the person of color who gets in trouble first. And it reminded me that when the United States citizens go overseas, we bring the people that we are. I brought my understanding as a Native person, and everyone else brought theirs. And I struggled with that a lot. And and I struggled with that when I was writing the book. It it was sometimes it it felt challenging to talk about some of this because there's a lot of respect for Peace Corps volunteers and the organization. But I felt it was important to to highlight some of these discrepancies. Mm -hmm. So there's so much to admire in your book. Um, you know, not only your story, but also just as a beautiful piece of, of travel writing. I felt like you described Bolivia's people and places so vividly. And I wanted to ask if you kept a journal during your time in the Peace Corps. And if you did, um, how did recording your experiences help inform the book? And what other research or sources did you pull from? Yes, I appreciate that question because I some I think sometimes we forget that memoirs involve a lot of research in addition to the personal reflections of the of the author and I had asked my editor if I could add footnotes to the the book and he he said that it wasn't necessarily appropriate and so we tried as as much as we could to incorporate the 
sources within to the narrative itself. But I did a lot of research. Um, one of my favorite sources is JSTOR, which is a digital library of academic journals, books, and primary sources. I, I mean, I would love to get a tattoo that says I heart JSTOR <laughs> because it just is a wealth of information. Some of it from the 70s, some of it really old and, and just incredible, uh, easy to, some easy to digest, some of them more complex, but a lot of good information about Bolivia and about the Andes and about anthropology and development and indigenous people. I, I just found so many great, great resources there. Also, one wonderful thing is I found dissertations by returned Peace Corps volunteers. And they, like I, what, were trying to understand their experience. They looked at the um, what they did and how it matched what they wanted to do, kind of like what I did, but in a more academic situation. And I found amazing dissertations. I found one where... The, a, a return volunteer looked at images of people on brochures and just analyzed how the images differed depending on who it was targeting and how, for example, if there was a volunteer of color, oftentimes they had some identifying mark. They were wearing a Peace Corps t-shirt or a Peace Corps visor something that clearly indicated in this picture of multiple people of color, you can tell who's the volunteer because the volunteer is wearing some kind of Peace Corps logo. Mm. And I, I thought that was so interesting. But yes, as far as my own journals, uh, I have always been pretty compulsive journaler and, and I wrote a lot while I was there. I had a lot of time to write too. And I wrote and my auntie Betty uh, sent me like seven journals, which were pretty, uh, pretty hideous to be honest. They're like these fake brown leather and they have this fake gold strip on the edges. But I actually really appreciated that she sent me this because it, it just felt like she what, it was a vote of confidence from her to to say, this is important. Your experience is important. Write it down in these books. And I filled those books up and um, I used them as a great resource when I was writing this. And however, it was sometimes really excruciating to read through these journals. I <laughs> I wrote a lot about boys or getting drunk and I didn't often write about the way the sun hit the mountain or, uh, you know, what the cobblestone streets looked like after a rain. So that's stuff that I had to definitely go back and, and, and look at pictures and, and videos and remind myself of what, it, what these places looked like. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the result is just a wonderful book. Um, Thank you. So, my, my final question for you is just, what are you hoping that readers will come away from an Indian among los indígenas understanding better about organizations like the Peace Corps, about the experiences of Native peoples? 
perhaps both in Bolivia and in other parts of the world? Thank you for asking that. I, I like to hope that people will come away from this book thinking about not just organizations like the Peace Corps, but any kind of service opportunities that they have in the developing world, like a mission trip, or even work within their own community with people who are considered, quote unquote, less fortunate than them, that it really needs to start with humility, that you cannot assume that the people that you're going to help are empty vessels that need you to fill them up. They're full humans. They know a lot about their life that they're living. And I really appreciate this concept of service learning, where you are serving people, but you're also learning. And you don't, it, it means you don't have to show up with all the answers, that you come with an open heart and ready to help, but understand that you're going to need to take direction from the community that you're, that you're serving. And then the second part of that question about what I want people to know about Native people, you know, I can't speak for the indigenous people of, of Bolivia or of the world, but I can speak for myself. And based on my experience, both this book and every, all the writing that I do, I really just try and get people to recognize that Native communities in the U.S. and around the world are as diverse as the communities that you belong to. My stepfather is, is Italian-American, and I often think about how even though he's four generations from the people who came over from, the U, from Italy, um, he can claim that identity, and no one will ever question it and say, you're less Italian, you're not authentically Italian-American. Mm-hmm. And someone who, it's the same as somebody who arrived, um, you know, last year, who just moved here and is became a U.S. citizen. I, I really want people to understand that in the Native community, it's the same way. That's my answer. <laughs> well, wonderful. I love that sentiment. Uh, Ursula, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for these very thoughtful, considered answers to these questions and for sharing your story with us. Thank you so much. It was a joy to talk to you. My name is Zoe Bossier, and you've been listening to an interview with Ursula Pike, author of An Indian Among Los Indígenas, a native travel memoir on new books in literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks for listening.